This is an ABC podcast. When she was a kid, Eunice heard a lot about heaven. How, if she just followed the rules, she'd be going there, along with her family and the rest of her tight-knit Christian community, the Plymouth Brethren. And for the most part, she and her family did follow the rules. Whatever the leader of the Brethren, the Lord's servant, said, they did their best to follow. He was, after all, God's spokesman here on earth. But as the rules for the Brethren got stricter and more bizarre, Eunice's family had an impossible choice to make. Stay, follow the leader and go to heaven. Or say goodbye to everyone they'd ever known and leave. I remember as a child thinking, um, I actually don't want to go to heaven. I quite like my neighbourhood here. And the idea of, you know, of streets made of gold kind of freaked me out a bit. I thought, oh, I wish Jesus had come down here. It's <laughs> um, pretty good in Turinga. <laughs> yeah, it's nice here. I don't want to go anywhere else. This is Days Like These. I'm Farza Draki. And this story is from reporter Sarah McVie. In a lot of ways, Eunice had an ordinary 1970s childhood in suburban Brisbane. She remembers playing barefoot in the yard, hopping the fence to play with the neighbours' kids. And when she wasn't playing, she was praying. Eunice was a pious, sincere little kid with a direct line to God. I remember feeling sick and, and praying and then not feeling sick. Just that belief that, you know, God would make me feel better. And God did. And as a little girl, I used to have nightmares and would go into mum and dad's bedroom and mum would say, oh, for goodness sake, go back and pray to Jesus. <laughs> and I did, and, and it worked. Eunice was from a long line of brethren, a Christian tradition that started in England in the early 19th century and spread around the world. You know that famous painting of the man and woman holding a pitchfork? That's how Eunice describes the vibe of the Brethren uniform, austere, buttoned up. Women, we all had to wear a scarf as a token of our being subject to God and very modest clothing, stockings, no makeup. We weren't allowed to cut our hair, no jewellery. And men, short hair, no beards, button-up shirts and long trousers, no shorts for men. And, and all of it comes out of verses in the Bible. In 1970s Brisbane, when Eunice was a child, there were around 500 brethren families. They stuck together and as much as possible limited their contact with outsiders. You're born into it, so you can't join it. And my understanding of God was indoctrinated into us that we were brethren and we were the only ones going to heaven. Eunice's parents had met at church, and by brethren standards were old when they married. She was 26, he was 30. Eunice's mum, Elizabeth, had always said that nobody wanted her because she was too outspoken. But Eunice's dad, Charles, didn't mind. He liked how warm she was, chatty and seemingly at ease with everyone she met. He was a very shy man, very introverted man. He used to play the piano and sing beautifully and could speak really well, as often shy people can. It was a quiet kind of love. No fireworks, but they were friends and allies always. After they got married, they had three kids. Eunice was the middle child and only girl. 
and the family prayed with the brethren a lot. They called their services the meetings. There was meetings every night of the week and um, Saturday and five times on Sunday. And Sunday was, yeah, the first meeting started at 6am and that was what I guess most Christian churches would call communion or we called it breaking bread and that that was the first of the five meetings. For the day. For the day, yeah. So it was busy. um, So we really, aside from the little afternoon play, it was all about church and family and cousins and for a child it was great really. Eunice had dozens and dozens of cousins and they were all brethren too. On Saturdays, they'd do this thing called interchange where they'd go and see brethren in other towns like Warwick or Nambour or Toowoomba. Toowoomba was Eunice's favourite because she got to see her cousin Bernice and her favourite auntie Florence. Florence was short and plump with knowing blue eyes and a great sense of humour. And she was a soft touch. She'd let Eunice and her brothers and cousins run wild through her big Queenslander while she and Eunice's mum Elizabeth would talk non-stop. Eunice could see how happy her mum was to be with her little sister. In these times with family, they made the strict rules of the brethren that little bit easier to bear. Every aspect of your life was controlled. There are expectations and rules um, that govern your personal life as much as your spiritual life. No eating with people outside the brethren. You know, no beach, no movies, no music. The brethren were not allowed to have superannuation, not allowed to be part of a union, not allowed to vote. It's a sin to carry debt or to be bankrupt. So there were all these ways of keeping you quite bound as well. Men and women had distinct roles within the system. Men spoke at meetings, they led the prayer. They often worked trades in brethren-only businesses. Girls left school at year 10, and that was it for them. Tertiary education was banned. Women could work in service roles, but their main job was raising children. The word worldly was used a lot, and that is, you know, if I wore my hair a certain way, you know, another sister, brethren, would say, you look worldly, you better fix your hair. Or if you wore a dress that looked a little bit like maybe it came from a shop and wasn't homemade, you look worldly. And what did it mean? Well, it meant that you were unclean or not worthy of God. So Eunice playing barefoot with the neighbours? Definitely worldly. And she and her brothers snuck other little worldly morsels too. We'd go to Indrapilly Shopping Town while Mum did the shopping with Dad in the Saturday morning. We'd sit outside Chandler's and watch the TVs through the windows and hope no one saw us. And Eunice's parents could be prone to a bit of worldliness themselves. Even though they'd both been born into the Brethren, they shared a quiet taste for rebellion. Whatever you did, you hoped no one saw you do. And that was things like going to the beach. Did you go to the beach? We did, yes. I remember going to meetings up at Nambour and occasionally we would go to the beach on a Saturday for a little swim. And um, I, I remember putting stockings over the top of sandy feet and then um, going to the meeting. But I also remember the feeling of wearing togs and feeling really uncomfortable, like I was all exposed and I was out in public, that feeling like a sin. 
Eunice knew that if her family were caught, there'd be consequences. She'd heard the adults talking about what could happen if you were found breaking the rules. You know, I remember mum saying to her sister one time, oh, it's terrible, I can't remember the lady's name, but it's terrible that she was um, excommunicated because she liked wearing red. You know, things like that, which you just knew, oh gosh, you wear red and you can't see your family anymore. (laughs) You know, those little things as a child, you just absorbed it. Every Brethren household kept shelves of ministry books. These were basically transcripts of the latest rules handed down by the Plymouth Brethren's leader, the Lord's servant. So whatever this person says is assumed to be direct communication from heaven. And for the most part, that was the main contact Eunice and her family had with the Lord's servant, a man who was similar to Jesus in importance. But then, when Eunice was about nine years old, news spread throughout the community. The Lord's servant was touring Australia. And they were going to get to meet him. So we travelled down to Gosford and stayed with other brethren down there. And I do remember seeing him and just being like a... Isn't it funny? I just remember being feeling so privileged... That I was sitting opposite the Lord's servant and I could see his face straight in front of me. What did the Lord's servant look like? Mm, Just like an old man, really. Grey hair, bit pudgy. Seeing this man looking into his face, he didn't seem as important as Jesus. He was an old man giving out orders that seemed to say more about him than about heaven. I think one ridiculous thing was that women should wear Chanel number five. Oh, crazy. You know, you think, where does that come from? Probably he liked the smell of it. I don't know. When she was 10, Eunice's uncle Ivan got caught sinning. He was doing naughty things like going to the pub. And he eventually was excommunicated and my auntie chose not to go with him. Uncle Ivan was cut off from his parents, his siblings, and even his own children. He'd go and, you know, sit across the road and watch his, you know, little children and um, little Rodwell and him used to have a little sign where they'd do little thumbs up and, yeah, so he'd sit there and, you know, watch them. Then when she was 11, Eunice's dad got in trouble. It started when he was asked to speak at a meeting... As shy as he was, he agreed to do it. And he was really nervous and sick and did it and all the rest of it. And then afterwards, back at another brethren's home, he had scotch to drink and fell asleep. And we were shut up because he was presumably drunk. Being shut up meant you weren't allowed to come to meetings or see other brethren. Eunice's dad had to wait at home until the brothers, the men from the Brethren, visited him and he confessed his sins. She says it felt like months waiting for them to come. She felt sick with shame. Once you shut up, then you're that side. You're those people now. And I think that was probably the start of the slippery slope for us, actually. (laughs) Eventually, Eunice's dad was forgiven, but Eunice's parents were becoming less and less able to stomach it. 
They talked quietly among themselves about the rules and how wrong they felt they were. They started playing a bit loose and fast. They took Eunice and her brothers on a holiday to the Gold Coast to get away from it all. This was very worldly behaviour indeed. We went and stayed in a motel down at Burley Heads. <laughs> I'm talking like as if, oh, I'm telling you a big secret. Um, we stayed down in, in a motel at Burley Heads and we watched TV. All the whole time. We didn't leave. <laughs> we watched a lot of British comedy and we had the taste for it. Their taste for it lingered, even after they got home. And this one day, yeah, we were mucking about with the neighbours under Mrs Gibson's house and there was a little old black and white TV that had been discarded. And we brought it home and stuck it in the lounge for when Dad got home from work. (laughs) And then he got it fixed, actually took it off somewhere and got it fixed. It was kept in his wardrobe and we had blankets up on the windows and everything, so (laughs) anyone driving by couldn't see the light, the blue light flickering. And why would someone be driving past Oh, they did. They did. Absolutely. There was a couple of brothers that we knew were always, like if there were people that they kind of suspected were doing naughty things, they'd drive, knock on mum's door in the middle of the day, that type of thing, just to check up. So you're being surveilled? Yeah. But it wasn't the surveillance or her parents' love of scotch or British comedy that was the final straw. When Eunice was 12 and her brother Martin was 14, Martin started being a teenager, doing teenage things, skipping school and hanging out in the bush, drifting from the brethren. He was always in trouble. Gorgeous boy, smart, but reckless. They knew that, like, young boys in the Brethren that started to get into trouble, it wouldn't be too long before they'd left. You know, they'd just leave uh-huh. and then they'd lose their son. So that I know was on their mind. Do you think he was thinking about leaving? Yeah, I do. That was the tipping point um, where mum and dad just decided they couldn't do it anymore. One Friday night, Dad said, I'm doing it. And we were going, oh, my goodness, really? He said, yep, I'm going to do it. And we were all waiting at the window, looking down Harry's Road. (laughs) Within 15 minutes, he drove back up and we knew he'd done it. And he said, I just went in there before the meeting started and I said, beloved brethren, Elizabeth and I can no longer live a life of fear and bondage. I remember the words. How does it make you feel to think about him taking that step? I look back at my shy father, uh, introverted father, and think that must have taken extraordinary courage to do that, knowing what it meant. Well, for us kids, it was like we'd just won the lottery. We were just going, woohoo! <laughs> you know, absolute elation. The thought of being able to oh, do this and we'll do that and we'll, you know, go to the movies and we'll go to, you know, all of these things that all of a sudden we thought we were going to be doing, holidays. Eunice remembers seeing one of her little friends from the local meeting hall in the supermarket soon after they left. Like beckoning me over and going up behind the aisle and saying, what's it like? What's it like? 
<laughs> like as if I was in some other universe. I said, oh, that's great. <laughs> and how quickly did you start to miss your family? Yeah, pretty soon. I do remember about a month after um, <laughs> at the shopping centre seeing my auntie and her walking the other way and that just being really like, yeah, that was pretty, pretty hard when yeah, she just saw us in our face and just turned and walked the other way. Even when that happened, Eunice's mum Elizabeth knew she'd made the right decision for her and for her children. But she'd lived her entire life inside the Brethren, following the rules, alongside her mum and dad, brothers and sisters. And now she was out, with no real guidance, in the very worldly world. And she missed them. She missed spending time with her little sister Florence on the veranda in Toowoomba. Slowly, Elizabeth started to find her feet. She worked as a cleaner at a school and made close friends there. And she started spending more time with the neighbours. You know, they had a horse out at out at what's now Westlake. Yeah, we'd go out there sometimes and mum got on a horse, which seemed a very worldly thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Just being a bit free. Just being a bit free, exactly right. A year after they left, Elizabeth heard some devastating news. Her mum, who she'd adored more than anyone, had passed away. They didn't tell mum, so mum actually found out a month after grandma had died, just on the grapevine. They hadn't bothered to tell her. Well, not bothered, they would have chosen not to tell her. She cannot talk about her mother or family without crying. You know, it's a grief. It's grief. It's trauma and it's grief and it's never gone away. Eunice remembers the years after they left as quiet ones. She felt the absence of all her aunties and uncles and cousins. She missed those trips to Toowoomba to see Auntie Florence. She carried her mum's pain and made herself responsible for her mum's happiness. She tried hard at school... When she tried smoking and drinking as a teenager, she felt so guilty she joined a Baptist church looking for some guidance and some connection to God. When she was in year 10, she assumed she'd drop out. That's what Brethren Girls did. Until a family she was babysitting for encouraged her to at least finish year 12. And so she did. And then she went to university, something that would have been unthinkable had they stayed in the Brethren. She studied teaching. When she was 19, she met someone. He had a presence. And I remember getting like the little flutters as soon as he walked into the house. You know those people that fill a room? He fills a room. And yeah, I just fell in love. I was like, just did fall in love. It was like a crush gone crazy. His name was Richard. He liked her kindergarten teacher vibe and she liked his sophistication, his gregariousness, his worldliness and his hair. He had long hair and very cool for school. I think he went through a stage of even like gluing, gluing it, gluing it up like a mohawk and putting things in it. He'll be so embarrassed. Very 80s? Very 80s, new romantic sort of style. Uh, Eunice told Richard about her upbringing in The Brethren. And as she explained it, she could see her childhood through his eyes and it looked totally different. I remember us driving to um, the meeting hall 
and parking up on the hill at night at the start of the meeting and watching all of my family drive in and I was able to, like I could reckon, go, there's my uncle, there's my, you know, and all the little children running around with each other in the car park and then the gates closing, the big barbed wire fence closing and then the doors shut and him just going, oh, my God, that is unbelievable. Just like some secret society just descended on this place. It's, I would use the word now, cult. We never would have used that word then, but it, it by all um, accounts, is a cult. Eunice and Richard got married, had three kids, made Elizabeth a grandma. She grew old waiting to hear from her family. But in recent years, the rules have changed at the Brethren. The strict separation doctrine that's kept families apart appears to have softened. All of a sudden then my uncle was calling and like as if they were told that they need to go and reach out. Even after Elizabeth heard from her brother, it didn't mean she was allowed contact with the rest of her family. And having him reach out after all these years, it didn't quite feel how they thought it would. It was a shock and it was joy and it was, um, I can't describe it, mum gets this feeling too, it's a sick feeling. It's a really destabilising feeling where it's joy and love but at the same time everything feels like it's shifting in a way that you're not quite sure if it's the right thing. Yeah, it's like it's in your bones that it's not the right thing and it's not on your terms, it's never on your terms. Eunice's dad Charles died a few years ago and these days Elizabeth lives with Eunice and Richard. She's 84 years old And as she gets older, she spends more and more time thinking about the past. And Eunice takes Elizabeth on long drives around the streets where she grew up. They were bachelors. She listens while her mum goes back in time and retraces the contours of her old life. A life where she's still young, where she's still with her family, where she's getting married with her sister Florence by her side. She was my, you call bridesmaid, but she was... um, she just had a, a suit on, you know, but um, no, she and I were very close. A couple of months ago, Elizabeth got a phone call from her brother. So my uncle rang to tell mum that Florence wasn't well and mum, of course, wanted to see her. He did say, it'll only upset you and it'll only upset her, so probably best not to. But mum took it, nope, she's going to go and see her sister. Eunice found the nursing home where Florence was living and they were welcome to visit. The brethren were no longer in charge of contact between the two sisters. Before they saw Florence, they heard her speaking. And even after 42 years, they knew it was her. You know, people's voices stay with you forever, don't they? Hello. Hello. Hello, you. It's my birthday today. Happy birthday. I'm 84. Oh, you've done very well. <laughs> and I said, that will be the best, best birthday present I'll have ever had, to come and see you. Yeah. Oh. Have to kiss you. Mm. We Florence you. held Elizabeth's hands and kissed her. But in one moment, Florence knew she was with her sister, and then in the next moment, she didn't. Oh, what was your maiden name? Wise. 
<laughs> I'm Miss Elizabeth. I was your you sister. Of course, I'm your Elizabeth. Oh, Elizabeth. <laughs> you could see oh, that they knew so each this, other. They were very familiar with each other and that they loved each other, even though at various times you could see that they were getting losing track of where they were and Auntie Florence would occasionally go, oh, hello, oh, who are you? Oh, you're Elizabeth, you're my sister. We were living living in that part before Mum... Your sisters. Hmm? You two are sisters. Sisters. You two are sisters. We're sisters. Oh, Florence. And yep. I'm Elizabeth, your older sister. Oh. And this is your mother and your father, yeah, both of you. Elizabeth, Elizabeth. <laughs> yes. I love you. You were my bridesmaid when I got married. Wasn't I? I should have brought that photo, shouldn't I? There's this one moment that stayed with me from Elizabeth and Florence's reunion. They've been talking for a while at this point. Florence has slipped in and out of knowing that the woman she's with is her sister. And Elizabeth is reminiscing about their mum and dad. He was bossy and he was hard on mum, you know. I know, and I used to, I used to stand up to him and tell him, "You leave mum alone. You just leave her alone." Oh, I was a, a, a very outspoken growing like up. Elizabeth, Elizabeth was like that. That was me. like Elizabeth, says Florence. Elizabeth was like that. After 42 years separated from each other, after dementia had taken so many of Florence's memories, she still had that picture of her big sister, outspoken Elizabeth. It's a tricky thing. I knew that it would be, um, it would bring up a whole lot of stuff, but at the same time I knew it would be healing, you know, and it was. Why do you think it's healing? Um, part of it, I think, is just the fact that she wanted to, and we did. So a sense of control about her. I want to see my sister, and I'm not going to ask permission, and I'm going to go and do it. That was Eunice with her mum Elizabeth and auntie Florence. This episode of Days Like These was reported by Sarah McVie. Our script editor was Sophie Townsend. Our sound engineer was Nathan Turnbull. Original compositions are by Jack McLean. Our executive producer is Sophie Townsend. This episode was produced on the lands of the Turrbal and Yugara peoples. Make sure you catch our next episode about one man's argument with a city that's locked itself up. Thousands of people have taken part in a rally to protest against the lockout laws in Sydney's entertainment precincts. Revelers say the alcohol restrictions spell the end of a vibrant cultural scene, but doctors say it's saving lives. I was so nervous not knowing who would turn up. The weather was looking really sketchy. I was meant to speak as well. I hadn't really prepared a speech. There were so many moving parts to be on top of. I'm Fazi Draki, and I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.